Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant and the Forgiving Path. I'm Dr. Bill Sendard with Gospel at Ministries. Every year I do a special Easter podcast uh, that runs on both podcast platforms, Gospel Rant and Forgiving Path. And I want to do that again this year at Easter. And, but this time, I want to push it. I want to push the limits. I want this podcast to, to really stretch we Christians a little bit, to make us scratch our heads and challenge the norm and the status quo. I mean, that's what we do with the gospel rant, I think, every week. We need to be woken up. I mean, this world is becoming more and more violent and unloving and dangerous and self-focused, frightening, more secular. So I want to do this, even if it means, even if these words that I'm about to say are going to get some people upset, so be it. I mean, I think it's extremely biblical. I just want to push the envelope a little bit, okay? So so hang with me, those of you who are fans of gospel rant and the forgiving path. Um, yeah, you've heard me say these things. I just want to put it all in a single podcast and get this out to people. Uh, look, this would be a great thing to give to your small group to get people thinking. All right, so this is Easter. So Easter, you know, we think it's a lot of fun, and it is, and beautiful, and it is, and great music, and that's true, and fellowship, and the Lord's table, and the cross, and all those good things. But listen, I need to portray this biblically. We're celebrating the most horrific and the most wonderful act ever done for us, for unlikely people like us, like unlikely people like me. It should both trouble us and excite us. It should be uncomfortable the more we think about it, what happened and why it happened, but it should also make us dance with joy. Not either, but both. And if we only pick one of those extremes, our view of Easter is unbalanced, and we we are messing up the gospel. So look, shockingly, the good news of Easter starts with Jesus' suffering and being humiliated, subjected to horrible injustices, agonies, isolation, loneliness, betrayal, torture. And he did it for me and for failed, unfaithful, unrighteous people like me. People who fall way short of expectation. He did it for me. And he did it exclusively for enemies of God. Every one of them that he did it for were enemies of God. Every one of them that he died on the cross for were unbelievers, selfish people, depressed people, failed people, addicted people, angry people, uh, unloving people, the unrighteous. So many of, of them, of us, are, you know, in, in our lives, our human existence have been at points and times unlikable. We've done ugly things, uh, harmful things. So the whole thing, the whole Jesus on the cross thing, his motivation, what he did is so unlikely, humanly speaking. It is. So too good to be true. Right? The gospel. And yet, there it is. It is true. Happy Easter. That's what we're celebrating. Not something reasonable, but something that is ridiculously unreasonable that a God would do something like that. Any God. Pick a God. <laughs> right? And why did he do it? Why did Jesus do it? Was he just being a good soldier? I mean, he did, did he do it just because of obedience to the Father? Well, that's definitely part of it, but it's so much more. He also did it because he loves people like me. People like you, if you're a Jesus follower, or, or going to be a Jesus follower. See, and he loves us, loved us more than anyone else ever has, as we are, as I am. Not if I do this or don't do that, or if I live up to this standard, this expectation, I drop my addictions, whatever it is. He loves me as I am. 
I'm telling you, think about that. Think of that kind of community. That's pretty unnerving. If you try to put your hands around that, it's way out of normal. I mean, nobody treats other people that way except for the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You know, I I heard someone say recently, I mean, this is how far we are away from that message and being moved and surprised and shocked by that message, troubled by that message. I heard someone say recently that they can't believe in God and heaven and Jesus and the gospel and the rest because if God were really good, he wouldn't have allowed the cross. He would have he would end all suffering because that's what a, a loving God would do. All injustice, all racism, all inequalities, all war, pandemics, cancer, uh, invasions, all of those things. So they can't believe in God, they say, intellectually until he proves to them that he really is good and loving, meaning that he has to do a certain amount of fill in the blank. And then intellectually, they'll go, okay, now I now you're a loving God and I can trust myself with you. You mean something like that. I mean, come on. Really? I mean, I get it. I think part of the problem is how we've watered the gospel down. We've lost the provocative nature of it. But by the way, I get it. L- let me say this. I'm as troubled about those issues as the next person. So let me, let me say this. If I were God, and thank God I'm not God. God help us if I were. If I were God, I would wave my magic wand and fix it all, at least based upon what I know now, right? I mean, that seems to be that's what I would do, because it seems like a loving thing to do. But God doesn't do that. Not yet, And look, Christianity, at least historic, legit Christianity, has never taught that God's love and goodness should be measured by how we're doing on the planet Earth at any given time. It's never been measured by that. I mean, there's been cults that have measured uh, God's love and goodness based upon how how pure the world is, right? But that's that's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't claim that. I mean, you can be troubled by it all you want, but it's burying the headline. I'm going to talk about that. So, what I'm saying is if, if you wake up and there's still disease and racism in the world and you and you go, see, there's proof that God's a failure, that he's not loving. No. And by the way, that's not what the Bible has ever claimed of God. It's totally burying the headline. And look, let me, let me make my case this way. If, if you're going to hide behind intellectual integrity you got to look at the collections of alternatives to, to, you know, to being critical and dismissive of God and his love, right? So you, don't, so you don't like the God of the Bible because he's fallen short of your expectations. So instead, uh, here's some options. Let's, let's go with no God, right? Let's be intellectual here and test the premise. So no divine, no spirit, no heaven, no good deity, no bad deity. So there's no one from the outside who's going to help us fix this stuff. So all we have is our few hard years of life. There's no ultimate justice other than what we get here, and that's not much. Consolation for people, restoration, except what you get here, which is very little. All of all people who have had the crap beat out of them, what terrible news this would be. Those who've suffered abuse in their life, hardships, sold to slavery, extreme poverty and homelessness, treated with racism, injustices, uh, health issues, emotional, mental incapacities, loneliness, depression, addiction, right? All of those other dehumanizing things that we suffer with on a daily basis around the world. And so you're okay intellectual by just saying, well, it just is what it is. Life sucks, then you die. That's the cards we've been, we've been dealt. 
And, you know, you you look around and you can't see much goodness, so you don't go with the God thing, the Jesus Easter thing. Well, but you're stuck with your intellectual integrity in a very depressing, cynical, tragic, dark, indifferent spot. I mean, right? I would find that very depressing and frustrating. And I suppose this could motivate people to lean into improving things, but it hasn't. Not really. I think things are getting worse. I could be wrong. But in my 65 years, I'm looking around going, this looks pretty bad. And even so, look at the surprising, massive need. You're not going to fix this through education or increasing taxes. What hope are you, intellectual, offering dehumanized, shredded people who've suffered injustices and and torture in their life? Maybe you're one of them. What hope are you clinging to? Is it easier to just embrace bad news like that and go, eh, that's what it is, and just pour yourself another drink instead of the biblical God? Your path, by the way, doesn't remove evil injustice in the world either. I mean, the very thing you criticize the so-called gospel of, which it doesn't even claim to do, your path doesn't help much either. So how can you intellectually argue that this one's better? Well, there's other paths you could pick. You could say, secondly, there's a divine entity that rewards really good behavior, and we just haven't done enough good behavior yet, right? Well... That good behavior is typically done, pushed by a a few, defined by a very narrow set of writings, largely cultural, very exclusive. And you know what? Adherents are just unclear how much one needs to do before their deity kicks in. Is it 60%, 70%, 80%, 85%? Do we push it to 90%? And even then, you know, when when does the reward kick in? And, and what do the rewards look like? In the end, it looks like a few type A's eventually who form a bit of an innies club who have convinced themselves that they're pulling it off. That's just terrible news for people who, who can't hear uh, what they're saying and they haven't heard the, the demands by the divine, who haven't been exposed, who, who or who have already screwed up so badly for people whose brain are already incapacitated by addictions or depression, by deep-seated trauma or or mental incapacity, right? They can't understand for some reason. That's terrible news for beat-up victims who have been treated unjustly, who just can't move forward, won't move forward. It's horrible. But this path intellectually describes, unfortunately, the vast majority of the world's religious philosophies, including so much of historic Christianity, unfortunately, And still, even if you went this path, you still have the same problem that God hasn't fixed our stuff. You could still argue based upon your premise that he's, for some reason, unlovable and unloving. The world remains selfish and violent. And then there's the the bailout position, I'll call it. You know, yeah, this life's terrible. You messed it up. You screwed up. You didn't lean into it enough. But you get a redo. You get a recycle. And hopefully you've learned something or inherently you pick it up in your DNA and you'll do better. But to tell you the truth, there's zero trajectory of improvement in humankind that I can see. We don't seem to be learning or evolving, quite the opposite. The redo is not doing us any good if if that's your fallback position. And still, your divine one or entity hasn't fixed the planet. The plan is not working there either. And then there's the gospel, right, That, that so many dismiss because it seems to not have intellectual integrity. There's Jesus. He's God. He's described as God. He's 
describes as God. He's and he, and he says he's the human reflection of the heart of God, and and uh, exposure of the heart of God. And and in that we see the prime passion of God is to go and rescue people who are stuck here, who are hurting, um, who can't get rid of the pain, who can't take enough drugs, who those who are being beat up by racism, bat the injustice, bat the abuse, bat. Uh, the uh, economic inequality bat, and they can't defend themselves. They don't have the power. They're done. They're toast. Here's how Jesus puts it. And by the way, he never promised to fix the world. Not yet. He says that he will eventually, but in a little while. And by the way, that alone is better than any other philosophy that, I mean, Christianity claims it's going to happen. But for now, all, all this promise is that people unlikely people can feel honored. The The ones who've, who've been subjected to dishonor and have not been loved, they can experience honor and love, a little or a lot. Listen to Jesus's first sermon in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He says that of himself, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, nowhere in there does he say he's going to fix the planet immediately. And he didn't, by the way. He says that his thing, his heart, his passion, his wheelhouse, his motivation is for the helpless, poor, and the homeless. That's who Jesus is. The impoverished, the structurally impoverished who can't lift themselves up, the immigrants, the displaced the uh, widows, the orphans, those who've been left out of the good things here, the disenfranchised, those who are imprisoned physically, emotionally, relationally, and all the other ways that one can be imprisoned. Poverty can be a prison. Disease can be a prison. Uh, depression, loneliness, body image can be a prison. Sexuality, all of these things can be prisons. And then he says, I've come for those people who can't see. They're blind. And and not just those who can't physically see, there's so many kinds of blindnesses out there. Then there's those who are oppressed, right? These are the helpless, the beat up, the ones who can't protect themselves, the stressed, the mistreated, the anxious, the betrayed, the used, the manipulated, those who've been treated unjustly and can't change it, those who, uh, who've been subjected to racism and can't change their lot, sexism, all the other isms. His punchline is to tell distressed and distraught Audis, the losers, the failures, the uglies, the, uh, the, the ones who are not enough, tall enough, righteous enough, good-looking enough, smart enough, educated enough, rich enough, right, healthy enough, and, and that he's rescuing them. He's come to rescue them, not just from the cesspool that they are experiencing, meaning the world, their culture, their context, but to bring them into a relationship with God that they don't deserve, we haven't earned, where we can know and experience and hear him say to us, looking at us straight in the eye, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. He came, Jesus came, not to fix the place yet, but to drag people like me kicking and screaming into God's favor, into the love of God, into the arms of God, into the dance of God as we are. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God. That's what we're celebrating at Easter. He didn't come to fix the planet yet. To, he came to rescue hurting lost people in the planet. And that's the priority of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Easter. That's the headline of Easter. This is why Jesus did what he had to do. All of that was for so many reasons required so that Audis can become adored innies, strictly because of what Jesus did in their place. He's not requiring that they do anything. And who else, 
would do that? What other religious philosophy pushes this? What other philosophy of life pushes this? Science, religion, philosophy, right? Cults. No one goes even close to this, the, the things that Christianity dares to proclaim, none that I know of. But Pastor Bill, uh, you know, you haven't dealt with my uh, intelligent uh, concern. God hadn't fixed the planet, so he must not be loving. He hasn't fixed the planet enough, so he must not be loving enough. He hadn't relieved suffering. Look at all the tragic people. A loving God would fix that, right? Look, I'm with you on that. That's right, he hasn't. He hasn't, not yet. And yet, Jesus, remember, he's the only one at this level, right? He showed God's heart to us in a most amazing way. And and God's heart, his very, very heart is to rescue and raise up and adore the unlovable, the ones who have not experienced that here, who are stuck in the quagmire of suffering, inequality, and the pain of this place. He does that. We can experience that love of God now a little or a lot, not perfectly, not yet, and listen, I agreed, this isn't my plan. I mean, I like I said, if I had a magic wand, I'd be using it. But it is the proclaimed plan of the Bible, right? So with intellectual integrity, this is what the Bible says of itself and what Jesus came to accomplish. And I agree, I wish the rescue could happen quicker. I mean, you know, the complete rescue, it could happen completely. I'll give you that one. And Jesus says that it is going to happen, it's going to be great, it's just not here yet. I don't like the plan, honestly, humanly speaking, but, but there it is. And it's far superior to any other plan out there. If you want to have intellectual integrity, you got to be able to say that. Otherwise, there's something else at play. And, and here's the thing. If, if we have Christians want to have intellectual integrity, we have to start saying this. What Jesus accomplished is too good to be true. And yet it's true. Hear me again. It is so big so big and troubling, so too good to be true, and yet, there it is. It is true, All right? Now, having said that, that doesn't in any way suggest that God is indifferent or uncaring or judgmental or weak. It just opens the door for fools like me to argue that, that I don't like the feet of the rescue, but God is the only one really speaking about a, a rescue for the undeserved, period. So can the world get better? Yeah, that's that's what we desire and lean into. But honestly, it's really broken. Jesus, when he was around, he healed a lot of individuals, hurting individuals, but he didn't change the world much politically or structurally, not like what's coming. So I am disappointed, humanly speaking. I would love to have that chapter done. You know, let's 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 get this thing moving. But Jesus did show God's love to the least likely, and that's very surprising who he picked and adored. That's the heart of God. You have to like that. Uh, you have to be troubled by that too. He offered a path to the favor of God to those who would never have expected it or deserved it or should get it. It's tremendous stuff. And he willingly took on humanity's ugliness and pain and death and anxiety in order to do it. I mean, love? The love of God? Who has loved humanity more? You know, I'm going through the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel rant, and Jesus said to a true rabble of disenfranchised, dirty, ill, unfortunates, and he says to them on, on the Mount that they are enviable. Enviable. Blessed be, right? That's really a good translation of that. So what did they do to become enviable? Did they follow him? 
No, Jesus said this before they followed. Did they stop sinning? Again, Jesus doesn't tell them that. Um, before he says, blessed be, become righteous, become Jewish, sacrifice a goat, love your neighbor, worship Yahweh, be circumcised. No, he doesn't tell them to do anything. He says they were enviable right then and there at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because we have to understand this, in his presence, in front of his face, they could begin to experience the favor from God that few men or women had previously experienced as they were. Who says that? We have to put strings on this, we human beings, right? Or we think we're enabling sin. But Jesus, he just goes right to the punchline. And it's shocking. It's radical. It's provocative. It's uncomfortable. It is, humanly speaking, unbelievable stuff. But the gospel does that. The gospel says that. In many ways, we need to stop trying to explain it in such detail. It is it is above our pay grade. Jesus didn't heal them all. Even those he healed ended up dying later. But they were enviable because in his eyes, they became more human. They experienced from God, who, who no doubt many didn't even believe in on that hill. I mean, not the way we talk about believe today. Yet, he says that God was proud of them as, as they were. How? Well, because Jesus is going to, in a couple of short years, pay the admission price in full for those people. This is what we celebrate at Easter, stuff like that. Jesus is paying dearly so that even the most selfish, abusive, unloving, angry, addicted, indifferent among us would share in the loving embrace of God for eternity. People who you likely don't care for here, don't want to hang around with in heaven, God adores because he does. You can't make this stuff up. In my opinion, it lacks intellectual integrity to say that you can't accept a God who has the capacity but won't end suffering. Now, you can say you don't like the strategy. I'm, I'm there. Cool. And, and here's a poster. God went way beyond anything any human, and that's so still today, any human has ever expected or certainly ever deserved or is even comfortable with. His son came. His son suffered unjustly in our place, satisfying all justice that we so richly deserve for us so that we don't have to. Stunning. Stunning. Oh, yeah, Bill, but what about hell? How can God be good and loving if there are so many people who go to hell? And you know what? It's just not all their fault, or at least that's what's implied. What about the well-meaning, sincere person who pursues a different spiritual path in, in his or her own context? He or she looks for God, but they never heard anything about Jesus or the New Testament or Old Testament, and so they worship God by some other name. Why would God not be able to weigh their ignorance and enthusiasm and well-meaningness into his rescue formula? Yes, it's kind of a straw dummy thing, right? I get the argument. In the end, it makes God look petty and narrow and very simplistic. But again, we're burying the headlines. Look, the provocative and crazy truth is not just who won't be there, meaning in heaven, but it is that any of us are there, meaning heaven. And not only in heaven, but right now adored. Right now, we uh, be able to experience literally in the arms of God being slathered and hugged with, with kisses. That's our gospel. This is what our God does. This is what we celebrate at Easter. None of us deserve this. No, not one. So me, I believe that we've underestimated the population of heaven. I think it's going to be thickly populated, trillions upon trillions. And I tell people when they get there and they look around, 
and they'll they'll see people from every people group that has ever been, some who lived, by the way, long before Jesus. So they didn't know Jesus in their lifetime, by the way. And when we walk the heavenly streets, we're going to look around and be shocked at who made it. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that person is here. And they're going to be pointing at us and saying the same thing. We're just going to be shocked by who Jesus loves and who Jesus rescued, including us. So again, we're bearing the headline in the name of so-called intellectual integrity and rationalism and reason, but it ends up just make, setting up a straw dummy God who looks more like one of us than, than himself. Instead, the big deal is that Jesus modeled that God loves and rescues people who are so far away, so far from righteous, so unlikely heaven dwellers, even enemies of God. And by the way, that's all of us. Nasty, unlikable people, people who you would avoid if you saw them in the store. And again, what other philosophy or religious path does this or even thinks that this would be a good idea in any way? Heaven filled with unlikable people, how troubling would that be? But that's who will be there. And so we have been given the spirit in our inner being. And that part of the plan is crazy. Who thought of this? It's over the top, outlandish, too good to believe. One of my friends says the spirit is so pleased to dwell in our cesspool hearts because he loves us that much. But he doesn't fix it, not perfectly yet. That's not part of the plan. It never has been until a time coming. Jesus's passion listen, is to make even we scarred, relationally damaged, traumatized, critical, competitive, judgmental Christians begin to grasp, that's us, begin to grasp, to begin a little bit to feel, and again, not perfectly, nowhere near, that's heaven, but we can begin to feel the love of Jesus for us. That's amazing. In spite of what our nasty, critical inner voice is saying to us over and over, that we're not lovable, that we didn't live up to expectation, and again, what other religious or, or spiritual or philosophical path even dares to suggest something like that? Who would believe it? It isn't intellectual integrity that causes someone to reject God and the gospel. Fear does, right? Fear of being wrong, fear of having the rug pulled out from under you. Nothing has hurt us more than relationships. And so think about the danger of entering into a celestial one. If that rug gets pulled out, that's going to hurt way too much, right? So I might avoid it. Maybe you reject God and the gospel because of shame, because you can't believe that anyone would ever adore you as you are, right? Because you don't even adore you that much. And that critical inner voice that reminds you that you don't deserve such good, you've fallen short of expectations, you deserve judgment. By the way, it's right, you know, but the gospel, the heart of Jesus is that he loves you more than you do, certainly more than that inner voice does. Uh, maybe you don't want to look like a rube to your friend and neighbors. The caricature of Christians is pretty bad sometimes. Maybe. All right, maybe likely too often. Okay? We're very bad Jesus impersonators sometimes. Uh, or maybe you just don't like the other Christians. You don't want to be around them for eternal, eternally. I get that. Or maybe you just haven't seen or heard Christianity put the way I'm putting it right now. But this is what I want to make clear. It's not intellectual integrity to reject or criticize Christianity just because it doesn't make enough sense to you, right? That it's not reasonable enough. To be clear, the gospel isn't reasonable. It is, humanly speaking, unbelievable, unimaginable, way too good to be true. It rewards the very people who don't deserve it. I mean, who does that? 
it, it rewards the very people who can't make a case for such a gift. And yet, it's what it says about itself. Again, who would believe that? Me, by the way. I'm one. And there's many of us. Christianity and the gospel and Jesus and the cross, it's too good to believe. We should start saying that. It's totally troubling that any deity would do that for the likes of you and me. And the cross, oh my goodness, that is so disturbing and so deeply troubling that that was the mechanism, right? There had to be another way, but apparently there wasn't. And this is the greatest act of love, but oh my goodness, that's troubling, isn't it? What kind of deity would allow himself to experience that? Or what kind of father would allow his son to experience that, right? Believe me, not a God of our making, for sure, not one that we write into the script, not one that that I would be comfortable with. But the biggest leap is that there is now a God who strictly because of what Jesus did, and we celebrated Easter, who now, humanly speaking, loves me and and the likes of me, uh, you, and so many unlikely others like us, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit love the Father. Right now, he can't adore me any more or any less even on my bad days, even when I screw up, even when I'm selfish. I'm, I, I definitely don't deserve it. And I've proved that even since I've become a Christian. I haven't earned it. I don't, I don't even love myself that much, but he does, as I am, not as I should be or could be, warts and all. It's way, way too good to be true. We should start saying that. It's way too good to believe or even to be comfortable with, and yet it's stunning good news. It's true, and yet it is not reasonable. But here's my tip of the hat to those who hide behind intellectual integrity. You are absolutely right. Theologically, the gospel doesn't make sense. I get it. You're right. That some deity would do this for you? Uh, really? Or me? No way. So run. I mean, if, if, if that's your thing, I think it's more fear-based and shame-based, but go ahead, run. Because look, it's a dangerous thing to slip up and get caught by God. It just is. I mean, a lot of people getting caught by God uh, have to carry their cross, right? And, and sometimes it's very painful. And look, you won't find it more reasonable the closer you get to his loving gaze. I'm telling you, the closer you get to Jesus, it's just going to get even more outlandish, more off the chart. And to top it off, God's rescue of the lost and the helpless and his healing of creation isn't done yet. He's going to do it in his own time by his own power, no matter what you or I say. Now, he does change our motivation, some, to be more loving and caring through the power and the work of the Spirit. I mean, check out Ephesians 3. But it's going to be incomplete. We can actually, through the Spirit in our inner being, begin to experience a little bit of his love for us, a little or a lot, not perfectly. But Christianity has never claimed that we would experience perfection perfectly before heaven. Look, heaven's going to be great, but this ain't it. So intellectually, here's a question I want to ask you. Right now, you who are criticizing God's plan and rejecting it, is your hesitancy caused by your inability to see how badly you need to be rescued? I mean, is that it? If your need of rescue is so great, your criticisms and judgment just wouldn't hinder you as much. I mean, you need to be rescued. That's priority, right? And and all of your criticisms and suggestions to God would be just less interesting. 
So do you see your desperate need for an external rescuer? Do you see just how lonely you really are, how broken you really are, how needy you really are, how empty your cup really is? No judgment, me too. Uh, do you see how much of a underachiever you are, humanly speaking, how shallow being able to explain everything about God really is compared to that? Honestly, that's what you're missing. All you need is need, and most of the time you don't have that. So can I share with you, you're hurting far more than you know. It's not about trying to explain God or, or finding a God who you're comfortable with. you got a huge need, and your best bet is to run to God empty-handed, palms up. But your so-called intellect, at least you think, is keeping you from admitting your need for a rescue, or at least prioritizing it. What difference does it really make in the long run if you can explain uh, or appreciate the nature of your rescuer, or agree with uh, the nature of your rescuer, right? Or if you can't, first things first, if you need a rescuer, get rescued. It's not like there are a bunch of them out there, not really, not ones who claim to actually love the unlovable. So how have your reasonable rescuers treated you so far? How's it going for you? It's time for an unreasonable one, perhaps. One of whom it can be said that his goal for you is to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, meaning you, you won't be able to explain it, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, right? Ephesians 3, 19 to 21. Basically, this thing's inexplicable. It's way too good to be true, and yet it's true. So do you want to feel like a person of honor and glory a little bit more? Less lonely, less isolated? Do you want to experience someone saying to you, you're my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased? As you are, not if and when you get better or more perfect or more right or um, less addicted or more convinced, have all the answers, then there is at least one self-professed rescuer, only one that I know of, and his plan is difficult to explain. It's over my pay grade, why he does what he does, explain such a love, and it's even more difficult to be comfortable with, right? Because we have so many questions and issues and concerns, at least on paper, but if you're tired of the intellectual walls that you've put up that aren't giving you any life, I mean, what have they done for you lately? Then today, please set the questions and criticisms aside. Don't get rid of them, but keep them with you. Pin them on the bulletin board. You'll get to them eventually. But first things first, you need a rescue. Ask God to make it happen. So much so that even your so many rational concerns and questions get, get immersed washed, put in their appropriate priority based upon the stark reality of the present kisses of God for you. There has never been a single Jesus follower that I know of on planet Earth that has had all of their questions answered. Nowhere close. I have more questions now than I had before I became a Jesus follower. And the closer I get to Christ, those questions multiply. And by the way, the more troubled I am because I can see he is so different from me. And that's awkward, right? Uh, but but I'm also feeling more loved by him. I can't explain that. It just is what it is. It's it's a it's the most amazing mixed marriage, me and Jesus. Such a strange combination. He could have done so much better, by the way, but he doesn't think so. This begins to explain the messiness of churches because 
These are a bunch of people who are struggling with the same thing. It's, and it's hard being loved as much as we are loved by Jesus. It's so strange. It's so awkward. It's so unbelievable, so uncomfortable. Listen, no one else, no one else loves us as much as, as we are, more than we love ourselves for sure. And yet there it is. This is the gospel. This is what we proclaim and celebrate at Easter, an unbelievable good news unbelievable, inexplicable, off-the-chart good news that is true. Jesus and his stunning, provocative, inexplicable gospel is not for the weak at heart. It's for the needy. He's dangerous, and he's stunningly wonderful, and he loves me. Happy Easter, y'all. Take heart, child of God. God kept calling my heart like I just knew he was my safe place. I hope people don't walk away going, wow, you're really awesome. More than like, wow, Jesus is really interesting and he's really awesome. Everybody on this planet is dealing with some sort of what if. How does that one courageous decision affect the whole world? A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. If you were encouraged by what you just heard, please search Trevor Talks on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com.